0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Some things you cannot say. If you're thinking of coming to America, this is what it's like. Everybody's very fat, everybody's very stupid, and everybody's very rude. They said them all.
0: Some say he never blinks, that he roams around the woods at night, of a All we know is it's called the stag.
1: Making a career at motorsport is hard. In my top gear days, I just crashed a car and I was like, I-, I think I'll probably get fired. They said, if you crash again, you're done.
2: The stick was one of the best kept secret. How confidential you had to be in your job, bro. I had my own vision of how I would go about this.
1: I never took the helmet off. I would arrive at work in a balaclava, even in my civvy clothes.
2: In the end, it went, it did become a shit storm. You've never really gone into too deep what actually happened. Are you ready to? Ah. Uh, it's such a negative story, so I, I, I'm really restless to sort of talk about it. Be natural. Try. <sighs> ben, two weeks ago, we literally didn't know each other. However, one week ago, I was in the back of a taxi heading out in Las Vegas whilst dressed as an orange Nemo, sat next to one of my childhood heroes, the Stig. I also found out that he's a little bit of a piss taker during that week and have come to actually be quite close friends with Ben already, I'd like to think. Um, but before we tell the listeners how we got to that crazy point, which I was definitely reflecting on, in your own words, who are you and what do you do? Well,
1: Benedict, it's lovely to sit with you in your van. Um, yeah, we've had a great week, haven't we? But uh, who am I? Well, I mean, it's Ben Collins. I was born in Bristol. Um, And grew up in America and then through one way or another ended up becoming a racing driver, which is kind of like a dream thing to do. But actually, my original dream was to be a fighter pilot. But yeah, so I'm Ben, the racing driver is kind of how I see myself.
2: And it's fair to say in uh, your past life, a point in your career, you probably had one of the most recognizable outfits in television history, which is quite simply a white racing suit and a white, I'll always remember the brand, Simpson helmet. It was the thing that car lovers and kids like myself when they watch Top Gear were always captivated at who could be behind the other side of the helmet. Um, But when I've heard you speak on other podcasts about your story and parts of your career, usually it always starts from 2003 onwards, which we'll get on to why that that was an impactful, critical year. But I'd actually like to go pre-2003. I want to try and get across to the people that watch this and listen what it actually takes to become the Steg. So what did life look like growing up for you? What was your earliest memory of a car? Earliest memory of a car was uh, his, um, trips with my dad. So um,
1: he was something of a hooligan with machinery um, and, and in general, but he loved driving fast. He loved cars. And so the, for him, the, the company car was the thing. So he was, you know, he would have these jobs and... Uh, he was his. Other than the work, his main focus was what was the company car going to be, and these were conversations that would sort of evolve um, on these various trips, in between bursts of, of sort of overtaking and cornering and um, and handbrake turns, end of our drive, that type of stuff. So um, I guess that was there. I mean, and on the on the mantelpiece was Senna's Lotus. So in the background, he he would watch these Grand Prixs. I would be out doing my own skids in my little go kart. I had a like a replica kind of looked like a Lotus F1. It was a pedal car with plastic wheels, and you could make it skid. That's my earliest memory of dr- driving, um, in the sort of yeah, it as it a as a baby really. And actually, when you look back, I was kind of drifting it at walking speed, but still for me that was that was the thing. And uh, one day I remember him and my cousin pushed me in this thing. And that was the first sense of speed. They got me up to sort of running pace, which was extremely exciting. And this thing was quite unstable. So it was sliding around. It was just the best feeling. But that kind of got parked for a few years because I then moved to the States when I was five. Got into competition. So I became a swimmer. So I was swimming twice a day. Lots of training, which which was a great thing for lots of different reasons. Health and just, but also focus and getting used to being competitive, dealing with your nerves, the mental approach to stepping up to the block. All the technique that made a difference, you know, um, sort of, tenths of a second that that make a, a big difference to the outcome. So I was learning all those kind of things and getting on my BMX and doing and doing all that kind of eighties. stuff. Was that in the, your teenage? Yes. This was no. This is like between age of five and ten. Wow. So that's growing up in the US, um, Atari. You know, it's decades before you even were a glimmer in the milkman's eye. And um, so that was growing up in America. It was the best time to you know to be in America. Was in the eighties it was an awesome era. Then back to the UK, um, lived on a farm and there was, there was farm machinery. So mechanical stuff with engines. Um, and so I just terrorized the quad bike and, and actually, you know, that was a really formative thing. I learned a lot of car control. I was messing around, trying different techniques just for the hell of it. And, um, but not really with any particular goal in mind, um, other than having fun until I was, um, got my first experience in a racing car when I was 18.
2: So that does cover off quite a lot of a-competitiveness in growing up already, learning about racing, learning about tenths of a second, not even necessarily on tarmac. However, you did mention that even from the youngest years, you were already involved in being pushed around in carts and basically motor, not motorized, but vehicles in some sense for word on the road. Do you remember when the first time uh, that you thought, I love this, Like, I I love cars, I love automotive, I, I I'm passionate about this, rather than because... When you're a kid, sometimes you're just placed into to stuff, and I've seen even friends of mine from school that their parents pushed them into say tennis or whatever it was, and they ended up falling out of love with that particular thing because maybe they didn't really deep down love it. When did you discover that you actually had a real passion? For driving. So that's a really good point because I think there's a lot of burnout
1: in sports, and um, particularly from people who are pushed into things, and it's not their passion; it's their parents' determination that they, they've they've tigered them into a situation and. I think you know it, you do need to be pushed sometimes, and uh, there are you know to be encouraged to try things, whether it's swimming, football, you name it. Anything that you go and do that you're into, and you you try and take it to a, a higher level and develop your skills, that can take you in all sorts of different directions. But um, but yeah, and I think that's true with with racing. You know, look at karting. A small percentage will make it through, but I mean, there's a lot of parents there yelling at their kids, you know, to force them and cajole them into a position that they don't actually inside. That's not really who they are. It's not what they want to be. Um, but to answer the question for me, you know, the, I enjoyed every, these road trips. It was uh, just a thing, you know, I mean, we used to drive to, um, whatever holiday we were doing, we would drive across Europe. Um, that was a thing we did. It was quite fun slash unbelievably boring, you know, the back backseat. So there'd be some, some spirited driving. That'd be interesting. The longer distances before um you know games consoles were invented that you could take with you portable devices you know there's a lot of um a lot of getting car sick trying to read dodgy books and stuff um so for me though the the time i got totally passionate about driving f- properly was um first time in a racing car so i was 18 went to silverstone drove through these gates and i had a little bit of a taste of it my dad had started doing some racing i'd been to a grand prix i'd seen it and and was becoming aware of what this scene was, but when I was, it was when I was sitting in the car for the first time in a single seater. You know, you're less than a centimeter from the ground you, where you're sitting. Your bum is right at the floor, and turned it on, and you just feel the whole thing shake, and your body is bolted into it with these belts. And um, before I even set off, I, w- I knew I was hooked, and I knew I was.
2: It felt like I had, I was home. I just knew that that was me. I think that. A key point is, you just mentioned that on a road trip necessarily, because this was years ago, um, I think we can mention that you're in your 40s now. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. The The Botox helps. That's factual. But, um, (laughs) But you mentioned that on a road trip, you didn't have things that we have now, phones, distractions, games, consoles, et cetera. And I think it's almost natural that in racing these days that you'd be now looked at a little bit funny if before you got to a track, you haven't proved something on a sim. So, but back then, your first, your first experience of actually racing, the first chance to prove yourself was actually behind the wheel of something that could kill you at 18. So you loved that straight away from the outset. I mean, yeah, but, I mean,
1: motorsport has been born out of, I mean, originally they were, ra- they were racing these things on roads. That's where it all came from. in mean, c- circuits. Le Mans was born from the road races, Paris to uh, Madrid. There's open roads. Just used to, used to hack it across, so that was pretty dangerous, and and that's why they, you know, it was a safety improvement. But ultimately, you know, you're only really going to learn how to race by doing it. And um, and whereas the sims are fantastic, um, they've evolved now to a place where they are they are so much closer. You know, the, the better the sim gets, I, f- the, I find the better I am at the sim, because it's becoming more realistic. So your your sort of instinctive responses and reactions are more tuned into what the computer is doing. So it's become less fake, uh, but still mechanical and the G-forces and all that stuff, you're only going to learn that by actually doing it. And um, so, you know, you go out on a track, you do some testing, some practice. It's a remarkable thing how quickly human beings can adapt to speeds that are well in excess of what, we're, what we can walk or run at. It's just a weird quirk of evolution that we can process speeds in hundreds of miles an hour, but actually it comes quite naturally and you can learn it quite quickly. Um, so with a little training, it doesn't take long to do what, Outwardly seems to be an incredibly dangerous thing. You can learn it very quickly, and actually, that's why I love also instructing. So you know, fast forwarding to the Top Gear days, teaching the celebs in a car that was fairly simple, like the Suzuki Liana. Yeah, I had forty-five minutes. You could, but you could take someone. I mean, Johnny Vegas was a great example. He had not even he had not attained a road license. He was he he came to the track with his instructor, who was rolling his eyes at the stuff I was telling him to do. And he was listening in just thinking i'm he's this guy's creating an absolute nightmare because he, he still didn't really know how to use the clutch or anything um and uh I looked down at what he was doing with the pedals and I said, oh that's quite an advanced technique there your your left foot breaking into the follow- through and he just said, "I'm doing what he had no idea where his feet were so he just wasn't thinking he was just doing it um and if you've got an instructor with you then that's that's fine and you're you're able to experiment so yeah he didn't he really couldn't differentiate the clutch from the brakes which you know, obviously for advanced driving would be
2: a problem. But for that window of time in between you sat in a car with Johnny Vegas, the stick on top gear and getting in a car for the first time at eight, 18, sitting there, Silverstone, one of the most iconic tracks. You mentioned that you are in the States growing up, but you'd come back and your first race was actually in the UK on home soil at Silverstone. What, yeah. what was that like then? So that was my, so first try, you know, try out of it in a car was at Silverstone, um, which was
1: just mind bending. It, it, you know, the, the feeling of it, you know, I wanted to be a fighter pilot, and this this thing just felt like a fighter pilot at ground level, and um, and actually, the speeds at ground level feel much faster than up in the air. So I've been lucky enough to go up in a in a fighter jet, which was a boyhood dream. Went up in a tornado, and it's quite fast, but it doesn't feel as fast as on track. So um, it's weird how how these things sort of different are different, but it was an amazing feeling being bonded to that car and being completely transported. You know, it, it completely disembodies you. You are just it's just motion and the sensations that are coming through the the wheels, to your hands, through your bum, through your body, your chest. Everything is is united with that machine, taking you to this completely other world. So that was just driving on my own. The first race, though, that was a different deal altogether. So that was at Brandt Hatch. I'll never forget it. At the Brand Hatch, it was a Formula Ford festival. Hundreds of the best drivers in the world were there. I was in a sort of subcategory called Formula First, which is a similar thing, little little wheels that poked out the side, spindly little thing, but extremely fast. Um, And, uh, you know, I could drive the car fast. I qualified third. But I was surrounded by karting champions and all this kind of stuff. People were very experienced. I'd never done a race before.
2: So... I had to get it off the line and it was, I think it was a bit greasy, whatever. It's quite interesting, actually. You didn't have the car, uh, the car in wasn't part of the story here, really. It was just kind of, oh, dropped to the racing car. In.
1: Yeah, so I, so I was fast. I had no idea how I was doing it. I was just there. And, um, you know, people come, oh, how? Wh- what have you done before this? No, nothing. I, you know, I live on a farm. Uh, this is this is it. Um, and uh, people didn't believe that. that oh, you know, because I was fast. I, didn't, but I, I had the raw material, but I didn't have a clue how to really put it together. So into the first corner, you know, never, you know, my heart was beat. It slowed down. It was beating so hard going into that corner. The, the adrenaline dump was unbelievable. We were swarmed together. There was three cars wide. I had one car sort of nudging me into the into, in the back. It was all going off. And so being able to take a corner, you couldn't even see the corners, cars everywhere. So that was quite exciting. And, and uh, I slid wide, I think, at the fourth corner. I don't, I, the first lap was like a blur, but I still remember skidding wide and sort of drifting through the gravel and actually cut the face of, of a mate of mine who's a journalist who was watching at the time. So I made a mark on him, literally, um, and finished the race without crashing, which is a miracle. But I was up at the front from the get-go and I had a steep learning curve of, of how to compete on track with other cars and race offline, defend, not
2: defend, all that stuff. So was it your first part of you having a career and work, etc.? was that in racing? What was that question again? So the the first time you mentioned that you were getting into racing at an early age, and it's kind of um, family passions and growing up in a world of racing and cars and all the rest of it, kind of ended up with you sat there in a race seat like, what the hell's going on at Silverstone? Did that develop into like a career quite quickly?
1: So um, no, it's so making a career at motorsport is hard. Is hard, and um, so I wasn't sure where that was going to go. You know, growing up. I had lots of different ideas of what I might do. I was I wanted to join the army. Or I had uh, you know I was whether I'd be a lawyer. So I carried on with those in you know because the the racing seemed to be a, even from the early stage quite a fickle thing. You've got to find sponsors. It's extremely expensive. You've got to compete, be at the front to justify all of that. You know time expense and everything. And um, you know to to get going. The only way you can really finance yourself um, with well various ways you could be working, but was to go and instruct. So I started doing that. That was the sort of one way, but that's even that it's not brilliantly paid. You, you're doing your best. You're, you're learning another skill, but it's, you know, you're looking for every sort of opportunity to try and find some way of, of furthering your career. And to do that, you've got to find the sponsors and, um, that's knocking on a lot of doors, but it isn't easy. and, And luck plays a huge part in it and who you know.
2: And you knocked
1: on the right doors then? Eventually, so I had some good contacts. So I did get some sponsorship. So that got me through into Formula 3 um, and to America. So I raced Indy Lights in the States. And uh, that team had some funding as well, which helped. Um, but then that funding ran out. So I, I, I got as far as I could go. And then it became a career because I then switched across to doing Le Mans um, prototype racing and sports cars where the teams have got funding. Um, the, they're hiring professional drivers. I got to drive for Ascari, which, who had this incredible absolute beast this um you know formula 1 engine um in a lola chassis um Ascari was the team
2: they based in spain Ascari so they now
1: they they so klaus Schwart who set that up um he built the track in spain and, um yeah in the in ronda um which is a beautiful part of spain and he created this team, and he, his goal, his dream, was to create um, supercars, which he did—the um, KZ1 and the A10, which is another another beast. We got both of those onto Top Gear, which was awesome. Unfortunately, when I lapped it, the track was half damp. That car was would have gone fastest otherwise. Um, so he realised his goal. He, you know, he built he built these cars, which is a huge undertaking, and uh, got to see that up close. It Gives me a huge respect for you know. You look at what um, Christian von Koenigsegg has done. I know from seeing the the trials and tribulations that Klaus went through to start a car company at that level, it's hugely intensive and complicated. So to get
2: there's, everyone- li- there's a lot of people that have tried and maybe a few that it's hard to say if, if they've succeeded or not, if they're just constantly being funded and cash pumped in. I think you've got the likes of what's the Apollo IE it is another small car company manufacturer. I think Pagani so well established now that they've he's smashed it a ratio in the same way. Christian has. I actually asked Christian uh, once. I luckily got to visit the factory and I wanted to ask him a question. I was thinking about what I could ask him. And I said, "Um, would you say Pagani is your, your biggest rival? He said, no. He's like, cause our customers have both. He's like, I have more customers that have both than uh, customers that just have one or the other. So he, he said, I actually think Pagani is our biggest compliment. Like, to, to get the best out of both cars. And it was quite amazing to, to hear him saying that, that they just sort of had their b- different directions. But I do think deep down there was some level of rivalry. But no, Christian is a wonderful guy. And you obviously drove some of his machines yeah. in the early days as well. Do I remember seeing uh, an orange machine with some tyre stuffed in its mouth once?
1: It was silver. Thanks for bringing it up. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I mean, both of it, I mean, Horatio Pagani and um Christian, both of them have got something in common they they have stuck with it and they've it' has ta- it's taken years and years and years of ha- extremely hard work to get where they are. They're both artisans um that doesn't really make any money though you've got to be able to sell the units in, in enough volume that it justifies all that design and tech. They've both done it and it's a but it's a huge you know you've got to commend them for what they've done they're so so determined um the CCX that i I drove on top gear was an early model. And they'd been using it for. They were really keen to get. I think it was a production record for, in a straight line, like top speeds. Top They're speeds. They're still chasing that now. And people say, "Yeah, I could care less about that stuff. Like, really, it's me. It's pretty meaningless. You know, unless you're on the autobahn and you want to drop down that cog and it's just top trumps. Say it's top trumps. I get it because it gets headlines, but you know, who cares? On you know, a daily basis, you want to. How does it handle? That's what matters. So. The car arrived, it'd been stripped of all downforce. Or it, it, or it didn't have much anyway. So it's quite a the car was very light on aero. Um, this is the early CCX. And the ride height was quite high. And there was a little there's a few things going on. You know, I I'd noticed that the you know, the brake pedals a bit soft and um the power steering was a little bit tired. So there were moments, and that car was a beast. I can't remember how, how much horsepower it had, probably 600. So maybe I'm gonna get that figure wrong. Manual gearbox, this huge soup spoon, like massive handle, but all Victorian sort of feel to it. And, um, not denigrating the car. It was awesome, but it was a beast. And it, it will be the mo- for me, the most exciting lap I did on the show because it was literally all hands on deck. This heavy steering, you know, it was coming, going a little bit, the power steering was coming, going and I was firing it around these corners and you come out and the ratios are fairly short, remember uh, from memory. So I had to change gear quite a lot whilst sliding, you know, coming out the hammerhead, there would be a couple of gear changes so you're controlling this quite heavy car. It's quite unruly because was, the ride height was high and and, try, and doing it one-handed whilst trying to engage these gears and not screw up a gear change. And second to third was a bit of a, you know, it was a bit of a journey to get it cock on. And if you don't get it cock on, you lose a couple of tenths of a second. and That doesn't get the best out of that car, which is not fair. And I was always... Absolutely determined that anything I drove on Top Gear would get the absolute maximum performance. Otherwise, you you're just lying to yourself. You're lying to them. When the next car comes along, if you haven't given 100, how do you know? How do you compare them? So, um, so I was always determined to do it. Anyway, a bit too determined because I got it I tilted it into the follow through, and I'd felt that I could maybe just carry a tiny bit more speed through there if I could just float it float it in just a, you know a few miles an hour quicker. The tail broke away, and I I caught it as the power steering quits, which it ten, will tend to do. You've got so much caster and camber and, this, you know, the steering effort is massive. So I should have anticipated that. And uh, anyway, I couldn't unstick the steering wheel and it just shot me off the track. And as soon as I sort of changed direction, I was doing about hundred and something mile an hour. I just thought, oh, there's, there's a bloody tyre wall here. I've never, it was a tyre wall I'd never seen. I'd never been anywhere near it before. It was in the middle of a bloody field for no reason whatsoever. And um, I couldn't change she his horse, I was on the grass, sort of bombing along and just cleaned this thing out. And this tire got jammed into the sort of mouth of the, of the car. And we we were desperately trying to get it out. It was embarrassing. It looked ridiculous. Um, but the ambulance was coming up and I thought, oh, at least it's my mate, because it's, you know, friends of mine in that. But actually, they were just transporting Christian up to look at his damaged car as much as anything. I was obviously fine. And um, he got out. I thought, oh, no, I've got to exp- I apologize and explain. So we did, we had a good conversation. And um, I thought I'd get fired, actually. So I remember going up the steps to the porter cabin to go and see my boss, Wilman. It was fairly early days in my Top Gear days. And um, I just crashed a car. And I was like, this a- I think I'll probably get fired. So it's a, it's a hypercar, it's a you know expensive thing. This can't be good. And um, he was extremely good about it. Actually, Clarkson immediately backed me up and just said, you know, it's a wild animal. You know, you, I'm amazed you hung on to it that long. So I thought it was the opposite of what I expected. I thought I was going to get told off. And, um, you know, I was obviously feeling bad about it. Spoke to Christian and said, look, if you sort this out, get the, you know, lead the brakes, lower the ride height, stick a wing on the back, I reckon I'll go three seconds quicker. So that's what we did. And it did.
2: And we've just discussed how you're basically bombing around a £800,000, I think it is, 600 horsepower plus manual crazy Konings around a track. But you are the only guy in that white stick suit at that point. But yet, where your career kind of started and one of your earliest memories of racing and enjoyment was actually on a track where you couldn't even see the corner because there were so many cars around of you. Racing's clearly a funnel. There's hundreds of people, thousands of people that would love to get into racing, then it funnels down to the guys that actually end up as 26 on that grid or 12 on that grid, or whatever the circumstances is. And then there's the people that get to the peak of those and move on. But there is only one stick soap. How did you get that? The thing is, you also asked in there about some of the racing skills. that what, there, there's, there
1: are lots of different pockets of skills you need to learn to be a good racing driver which I hadn't really, uh, you know, I had to learn that from scratch. I read Senna's book many times, watched as much information. He was my sort of idol, if you like. That helped a lot. It also it also worked against me to some extent. He'd raced go-karts since he was a kid. I hadn't. He won everything. So I thought, right, that's that's obviously the simple model. You need to win everything. And um, and actually, in fact, that was a mistake because it affected my um, risk assessments of all the moves. I, was, uh, I thought you need to win these races, you do whatever it takes to get to the front. As a result, I had a lot of crashes. So I wrote off three... In my first season, I destroyed, completely destroyed three cars in the first five or six races by being totally uncompromising and forcing moves that weren't on with this dogged belief, you know,
2: like Ricky Bobby, get to the front. Like Max Verstappen-esque from these days, just kind of shove, chuck it down the inside or I'm coming through or we're having a crash? Well, he's
1: perfected it. I mean, he's... He is the ultimate in lots of different ways. Um, so, he, you know, he, he, he has created a new overtaking move. But, I mean, t- and to do that, you think how long people have been racing around in cars. No one's ever thought to drive that way. He's, he's got a new move. And that is, he has, he has developed a way of, of breaking into a corner. And like, so well, actually, the edge of the white line is where I can go to. So I can break later because I can go all the way to the far side of the track and then turn left or right for the corner. It completely destroys the other driver. So it's within the rules. You've got to race between those two white lines. If he comes past you, he's probably going to take you all the way to the white line and then turn away. And you're going to be left high and dry on the outside lane. And some people might like, oh, go, well, that's not so fair. It's a bit rough. It's whatever. The thing is, with, without breaking manoeuvres, it like, um, it's like playing poker. <clears throat> you're quite good at playing poker. I saw you in Vegas.
2: Um, I wasn't. I lost a lot of money in Vegas. Did you? <laughs> I was very much up. And in one second, I was very much down. Yeah. Well, that's it.
1: That's, that's life. But it's like that. You win or lose. And you can also, when you're, when you're outbreaking your opponent, the, the opponent has a choice whether to try and, you know, I, you know, stay you down and try and compete with you and end up completely hung out or let you dive up the inside and let you go too far into the corner and switch a rule on you on the way out. There's, there's so much into it. But he has coined this new max move and it works. And he's taken down... Champions, you know, so that's that's his overtaking prowess. But that wasn't what you were like then. Well, i I was in all the wrong places. So I was hanging out on the outside of three cars in a 120 mile an hour corner. I had no business being there and got punted into the wall. That destroyed that car. I ended up in a bathtub. I mean, literally, all the wheels came off. One of them nearly, I mean, nearly killed my teammate. This uh, the wheel and the suspension, the entire thing flew in the air. I don't know how high because I was spinning backwards at the time. My my teammate said. He was going towards Hawthorne at maximum speed in this car, and this thing just landed. It bounced over his head and disappeared. So that was the end of that car, chassis number, whatever it was. Um, another one at Lydden Hill was in qualifying and I was fully lit. Someone had a moment in front of me and I I had to get out I had to get around it. Like that I barrel rolled, destroyed that car. I can't remember the other one was. Must have been hit on the head. But um, so yeah. After a while, realize that um needed to adjust that and start picking, you have to pick your moments, basically. So that's a key part. That's racing. It's, um, it's also knowing how to deal with the pressure of being in front and when to defend your position and when to attack and all those things. The other side of it, so that's racing. The other piece, though, that I found harder, actually, was the qualifying runs, particularly when you get into the faster stuff with slick tires that need to be activated. You have to get them into an operating window And usually with a new tire, that window is only open for one or two laps maximum. And the car doesn't handle perfectly in that time. You have a much higher grip level, but it will handle differently to how you've been driving it in all the the practice sessions. You have to be able to imagine what it will do and you have to work on how you activate it. And you need to be motivated in that session. And I wasn't motivated in the qualifying sessions. I love the racing and the, the fighting side which meant that I would often qualify not well enough and then end up with these big battles, which were great fun. People would say, this was highly entertaining. But if you'd qualified properly, you could have won the race. And you're like, oh, okay. So that was a technique you have to work on. And that's, that's on your own. That's totally in your own headspace. Whilst keeping a
2: seat. Whilst keeping awake. Whilst keeping a seat. Because if you keep crashing a car, eventually oh. you don't get to stay in one. Well, that's what, that was basically what happened. They said, if you crash again, you're done.
1: I was like, uh, okay. So that was the element of fear that was needed because I was 18, 19. I had no concept of wouldn't give, wouldn't give a toss what happened to me. As long as I was competitive, yeah, a bit of fear was needed. So, um, yeah. And then, once I got the qualifying sorted out, that was a very, it's a cerebral thing and you're doing it on your own. And it's, um, you know, you're not you're not fighting with other cars on the track. It's about a perfect lap. <clears throat> and that's the skill that ultimately got me the job on Top Gear because you're on your own. Nobody's there to tell you to go faster. You know, well occasionally Andy Wilman would do. But I you know, I took his kind regards and made my own decisions on what to do because I was already doing my best, and and he knew that. I think he he used to enjoy it and I used to enjoy his pep talks. But yeah, you're on your own, and you've got to figure it out. so i, I my audition was with Wilman. I didn't know that really that he was the boss boss. I turned up. With, in, in desperate need of a belt, sort of saggy trousers. His bum was hanging out of his boxer shorts. You literally
2: just turned up because you saw an audition available to go to. No, like, like, like how did? Before we get too far, how how did that happen? You were in racing cars one minute, learning how to qualify, and then you're in a, um, an audition with Andy Willman at the Top Gear track. So, yeah. so what's happened in that gap in between?
1: Yeah, so I got to this sort of peak of my career, racing at Le Mans 24 Hours. Um, in the in the top category at Le Mans, LMP 900 it was called. It's called LMP1 or it's hypercars now. Similar sort of thing, 225 mile an hour in a, in a car that's got more downforce than a Formula 1 car, but they're way more. You know, incredible bit of kit and racing around the world was fantastic, but still fighting to make, an, uh, make a living, basically. So I was looking at other opportunities and, and TV seemed to be a good place to go because that would get brand exposure for sponsors. So that got to be a good thing. So I was going around doing the rounds a bit with with TV stuff. But I'd seen Top Gear. I remember the Noel Edmonds show. And I was hassling and hustling to get some work with the magazine, with the TV show. And that led to this, you know, for whatever reason, they were, they were looking for a driver. And um, so that's how that meeting came about. So Wilman got me, got me involved, took me to Dunsfall, where I went, met him there. Um, we had to stop watching a Ford Focus. And showed me the track, you know, because it's quite funny as an
2: airfield, it's quite flat. yeah. So it's all white lines. I picked up on that when we were, um, for anyone that hasn't picked up on it yet, we were in Vegas last week and we had a good week. (laughs) It was Uh, awesome. And you mentioned something which I I just hadn't considered ever in in watching it, which is of course an airfield track is really different to a racing track because there's not really any elevation changes. You are racing on essentially a table level rather than somewhere like Laguna Seca where it's all about the corners, but the elevation in them. So that was that was a quite different adjustment to get used to at all or yeah. Although, um, funnily enough, the first corner actually
1: has some ele- elevation. <clears throat> and that was quite relevant. So there was there's a few different lines through the first corner. Um and apparently mine is different to how a lot of other racing drivers tackle it. But I felt it was quicker. So I would cut the distance and get it in and try and get fast in and fast out, but also cut the distance. So you cut the distance, it's shorter on lap time. Um but uh, Yes, it's different. And also the, the boundaries are, are marked by white lines. So you, and you have to know where those are. So that was kind of what we were doing on those early laps, like scouting around, seeing where they were. And I was like eyeing them up and working out which, and I was asking specifically, oh, can I cross that? Can I do this? What's the, what are the rules? So on in racing, you're allowed, if you, you can have all, th- all three wheels across the white line, but as long as one is on the tarmac, the official bit, but they didn't like that top gear. You were not allowed to cross the white line. So no cutting corners which I was always desperate to do because between the first corner and Chicago, there's a white line, particularly in the really powerful stuff. You know, you'd be desperate to cut it because you, it would really, you could carry a lot more speed and you could brake later to turn right. We couldn't do it. Um, and we'd watch for this stuff and I'd get penalised and it was all self-censoring, if you like. He showed me the, where it went and you know threw me the keys to this thing, Ford Focus. I was not racing a Ford Focus. I was racing a thing with massive slicks, tonnes of downforce, and 850 horsepower um, at high speeds. And now in 150 horsepower road car, front-wheel drive, never raced a front-wheel drive car, except um, obviously shenanigans and as an instructor. So that was kind of what I relied on. And I threw it around as best I could. Wilman looked extremely nonplussed with everything that I was doing. And he's like, Is that as fast as you can? You know, I said, I said, How am I doing? He's like, Yeah. He said, Is that is that as fast as you can go? And I said, Yeah said, okay, yeah, thanks for coming. That was it. So didn't get hired. Didn't really hear anything until a month later. And then I got the phone call, which was, can you be in on Tuesday? Um, Turned up on Tuesday. There was a white suit and a helmet. And that was that.
2: And I think that's quite relevant because at any one point, did you realize you were getting into something that essentially was going to close off you as a, as a driver, Ben Collins was the brand, was the driver, was always the guy racing on track. Did you ever have any fears about stepping into? I mean, there must have been a lot more to it than just stepping into the white suit because the the Stig was one of the best kept secrets, or certainly in the eyes of the public, was one of the best kept secrets in motoring history. For many years, some people would say, is that Michael Schumacher, is that and there was all sorts of theories to who it could be. What was your first experience on understanding? how confidential you had to be in your job role. So
1: before I started, there was a Stig in the black suit, Um, but not for very long. It was about nine months. I think it was two two series, two or two and a half series. Um, And then he he was killed off. And it was around that time, uh, before or just as he was being killed, I happened to be in touch with the show. Um, And then they fired his character off the end of an aircraft carrier. You may remember this. And he was floating in the North Sea. And apparently the aircraft carrier as they they did this really they threw this Jaguar in, into the sea, but it didn't sink as fast as they thought, and the the boat nearly hit the car, and that would have had to have been reported as a collision at sea, and the captain could have lost his job, so it was quite a big deal. Fortunately, it didn't hit the car. Anyway, a little tidbit of information there. Uh, so I'd you know I'd seen what the you know what the characters about, and as a kid I was a huge Star Wars fan, so you know Stormtroopers, Darth Vader, Boba Fett, you never see their face. That's kind of a key part. You can see how that develops a character and it makes it something, it's really interesting. So I thought that was extremely cool. So when I started, I had my own vision of how I would go about this and maintain the sort of um, secrecy of it. And, um, and in my usual way, a sort of OCD did that to the, to the full. So I used to, I never took the helmet off. I would arrive at work in a balaclava, even in my civvy clothes, so that there was no possibility of being identified. And that wasn't something I was told to do. It was just what I, how I
2: interpreted the best way to build on that character. But did that get more serious as the years developed then? Like, oh, you really need to keep your character secretive now. How would you turn up to somewhere, like for argument's sake, when the show was on in disguise and then leave without some sort of pap getting a photo of who they thought was the man getting out of this white suit? So fairly easily, in a way,
1: it was quite fun learning these games and what you could get away with. So I would park in a, in a, randomly. Um, also, we were lucky because Dunsville is quite a secured site. So it's ex-military. It's where they used to develop the Harriers, jump jets. And um, they still have a, a guardhouse, and all that kind of stuff. However, people can sneak in. And we were always aware that were, there were paps crawling through the woods with long lens cameras and stuff like this. But they weren't going to get much. And so I, I'd park in a random spot Find out of my own little route I would take to get in, and I would, and you you're quite mindful of your surroundings. You can see what's going on if you have got your you know your eyes open. So I get in, and I get in very early before anyone else was really there, and it was quite a quiet estate back in those days. Um, so that was all right. That was that was straightforward. I knew where I was getting to. I used to get changed in the Harrier Pilot's um, old room, which is quite quite cool. This old brick thing before we had the pause cabin. What got harder was when we would go and do stuff in London and i'd have to go between being ben doing so for instance i used to drive these uh, range rover tracking cars around so we'd stick a the you know, film crew in the in the vehicle the boys with the tailgate open filming the presenters oh,
2: wow it was never like just the racing out on track no, and no. you you'd be roped into kind of driving all sorts of all
1: sorts yeah yeah driving tracking vehicles getting involved with some of the planning for the, some of the shoots and some of the crazy stuff we come up with um and but yeah, it was great, which was really fun because you you would get involved and you'd see how the how the boys were shooting stuff and you'd see how they were sizing things up. Um, so I'd be I'd have to get there would be like a you know that moment when you have to get changed in a telephone box type thing um, and pulling that off. So at that point it it was it would have been worse to walk around in a balaclava, probably get arrested, definitely these days, and kind of having to hide in plain sight and just be a bit low key, be the grey man. And stay out of sight, and then reappear. So that side did get harder as time went on. And but I was I was trying to be ahead of the game. So like when we get checked into hotels, they were putting me down as Ben Collins, which I said, please stop doing that. Kind of we're gonna and I created a new name called Richard Jameson, which tickled me because I it was you know Richard Hammond, James and son from Clarkson. And I got my own. I had a BBC. I should have brought a BBC card made fake identity with the with that name on it. Um, so that people wouldn't start reading, because you be, you know you'd have that conversation. We check in and go, oh, are you? Do you work with BBC? It's not what you wanted to hear. So that kept that under wraps, as well. That was helpful. Um, but Yeah, just having to be tactical, just think around how to get around it. But the, it got harder as time went on because by the end of it, I think I've been there eight years. And in the end, there was something like 120 people at the BBC
2: knew who I was because of turnover in staff. This is what I was going to get onto. Insurance forms, risk assessments, all of these. And that's just within work. That must have also grew in your personal life that people started to cotton on what was going on, how many people found out, et cetera. I was super careful with that.
1: So you, you know, you, the, your mates are the last ones you should tell until, it's, until it becomes defensive. So I think one of the big outage things we had was um, the health and safety report after... Hammond had that horrific crash in the jet car. Um, I was named on the report because I'd, I'd, um, I was going to be driving it and I'd been involved in some of the, well, a tiny, tiny fraction of the um, build-up to that, basically. Um, and that didn't help. <laughs> so it's like, well, who is, the, who is this um, racing consultant that was in some way involved? Um, and the papers got, you know, chewing on that and, and they were getting it right, you know, because I was there. So we did a lot of different disinformation. Um, Wikipedia had just started, so they were, we, there was always a bit of rumours on that. And then YouTube just started. And stupidly, I was asked to do an interview in my first series, and having never worked in TV, I didn't know any better, although it felt wrong at the time. And I did an interview with this Dutch presenter for their TV show, and they said, know oh, no one will watch it. it be fine. And
2: I said to the producer, are you sure this is the right thing to do? He said, oh, yeah, it'll be fine. But two years later, it resurfaced on YouTube because YouTube was recycling it. So if you really tried to find out, you could probably find out as a, as a diehard fan. Um, journalists were very good at it and they pretty
1: much worked it out. But they didn't really, they didn't spoil it until um, the BBC revealed me in the Radio Times. And then it was, um, they thought it was open
2: season. And that's when it started coming out in the in the bigger newspapers. So during your your time there, you got obviously really close with Clarkson, Hammond, and May, and not only that, you got to instruct, as you said, because it's amazing how many skills that you you have when you're younger that you think you may not end up doing that again. But you mentioned one of your first ever jobs in racing to earn some money was actually instructing, um, and you probably never thought that ten years later or however long it was that you'd be sat in a car with just gonna throw some names out there, Cameron Diaz. Yeah, yeah, that that that's a flex. That. That's that's pretty cool. Um, you mentioned, uh, was it that you mentioned earlier? There was Johnny Vegas. It yes. was a great bit of fun. So you've obviously got some people that stick out. What What were some of the relationships that spring to mind that, that you were you really remember from those days at Top Gear? People that you met. So the thing with the instructing, which particularly with racing,
1: you, you and any any racing instructor, I think, would agree with this, and probably it's true of whether it's water
2: skiing. Was that helmet on?
1: Oh, Top Gear, yes, helmet or helmet on. Your helmet's always on anyway with, with motorsport. You've got a helmet on and crack your visor open and talk. Um, you probably get one in 10 people come through the door who really can drive and they don't realise it yet because driving, how you drove to work this morning has no bearing really whatsoever with how you was driving on track. They are two completely removed skills. Although once you've got the racing skill, you do start to have a much higher awareness and perception on the road. It makes you a better, better driver all around. So, You'd activate these people. You'd get one in ten who could be activated and they would just take to it. It just and you'd be like, here we go. And they're to teach. And goes, Simon Cow springs to mind? So Cow was really interesting. So he was hilarious. He had a very natural feel. I managed to convert him to sort of a couple of racing skills that would that that he took to, but all of which he forgot between because he actually he actually came to the track twice. And I couldn't believe that he had re, sort of reverted to his home, you know, home brand of driving, shuffling the wheel like they taught us. I was like, oh, he's forgotten everything I showed him. And, uh, and, I, and the second time I said, like, oh, you know, let's try and do it like this. He said, I like it this way. So he did his own thing, but he did it really effectively. He had a, a very natural sense of his own um, environment. He obviously could feel the car and he was fast. He set fast as lap both times. Although I'm suspicious because he, he said in one of the interviews, he said, I've got a secret and um, I'm not telling anyone what it is. So I don't, know, I don't know if he cut the track. I was always watching. I don't think he did, but he was very good. So I don't know what secret this was. Maybe he, I don't know, maybe he's an electronics wizard and he, he just put a different
2: ECU in the Suzuki for that, for his hot lap. Anything's possible with him. <laughs> I mean, That's you don't sc- know. So you instructed all these guys um, while at Top Gear. So did Simon Cow for example, know who you were as the stick? No, you no, still yeah. had to remain in disguise and be ultra careful. Helmet visor down. What did that do to you after a number of years? It always being this secretive person. Did you enjoy that? I loved it. It was fun. I mean, I
1: didn't want to be on camera because it's, that's quite intimidating. You've got, you know, it wasn't something I... Yeah, that's
2: exactly what you do now. Now that's what I'm doing. Well, that's been a huge challenge to, to get past that. I mean, it was horrific. Because it, it does sound like back then you weren't interested at, at all. So it was visor down and you were yeah, enjoying it. It was perfect. Get it, get, go out, have a great time. You're involved with this exciting thing. You've
1: got these crazy people, the presenters doing this, these things and they're hilarious to watch them in action on camera as particularly off camera, you know, and the live shows. If only someone could have recorded what they were saying to each other before they went live onto
2: the stage, it would just, you know, break the internet. So so they are very much even toned down when you see Clarkson having a main on on TV versus what they're like off camera. Some things you cannot say. They said them all. And they were were really, really good fun.
1: The the live shows actually is where I got to hang out with them the most and go out and go and hit these cities, you know, after hours and have a really good laugh. They're, you know, they're really good fun. And also, you know, and also the, the broader team, camera team and all that as well, unbelievably skillful, um, talented people. And the production team, all the ideas, the creatives, coming up with idea after idea. You got, you know, Richard Porter is a well-known member of that team. You know, the script writer also involved all the idea, ideation. So um, a big family, really, a dysfunctional one, but a fun one. To be part of, um, so yeah, it was a great. Where did journey. you get
2: on with the best?
1: Uh, to be honest, all, all I mean, I really enjoyed all three. They, they, um, you know, Clarkson is a, is such a force of nature, and but you know, when we were out doing our stuff, you know, we we spent a lot of time together. Got to go to his house in the Isle of Man for that amazing shoot we did out there. It was a proper riot, and you know, um, you know, you're you're quite deeply in someone's personal life at that point, um, and that's a great place to go and find out what what uh, the crack is. And that's, I mean, Isle of Man, what a place. No speed limit. I, I've
2: been there. It's I love
1: it. Awesome. Yeah. They're, no, they're all good fun. And um, yeah, we we did some crazy stuff.
2: But what went wrong?
1: Well, all good things come to an end. And so in terms of the secrecy side, that veil was starting to slip. So <clears throat> I mentioned the Radio Times article. That was a massive own goal. There was, um, unbeknownst to me, They'd done a front cover shoot with someone dressed up in a white suit. It was the front page, front cover of the Radio Times. Who is the stick? The nation needs to know or something like that. And then you opened it up and it was my picture and my bio inside. So that was a main I got. I had some building work going on. My builder slapped it on the table and said, oh, mate, can you, can you sign that for me? I was like, it's nothing to do with me. Um, and he said, oh, no, you're in here. It says you're the stick. So... That happened, and then a couple of the Telegraph picked up on it. So, well, they're playing with this now. We kind of know it's Ben, so we'll start doing our own articles. And it there was, I started to hear rumours about getting other people involved to start doing my job. And I thought, you know, I've been here a long time. Why? Why would I be? Why should, at this stage should I be slowly phased out? I'd rather be locked in and do you know do more. So I decided it was time to go. So I'd there was a few hints that. That my time was coming to an end, whether I wanted it to or not, and I thought it was best to go out on my own terms. So that was that was the thing. So I handed in my notice. I'd written a book, um, which I was, you know, I got that sort of in progress, if you like, and as a as a sort of way of telling my story because I knew that it would be quite a big deal when I stepped out into a the open storm. Basically, well, I didn't know what it would be because there was a, there were a lot of different ways I could have gone. In the in the end, it, it went it did become a shitstorm.
2: It was quite a thing. So you mentioned. It was a bit of a shitstorm, um, but you've never really gone into too deep. What actually happened? Are you ready to? Well, sort of. I mean, the atmosphere of the show was definitely changing. Um, I noticed that
1: we used the crowd used to come to the track, and we would they would go to the studio and all that sort of stuff. And um, I mean, James was always brilliant. James Mace go out, make everybody tea, hand out biscuits, and then it, you know, as the popularity grew, you know, the, some security guards appeared, and then Tensor barriers appeared. And It was becoming this very—I don't know what you call that—but it was just it was different. Corporate conglomerate, more corporate, and there was more of an edge to things. Um, you know, there was just some of the fun had just, had vanished a bit, a little bit um, in the sort of just the just the easygoing nature. Just when it was a smaller show, it had become this much bigger thing. The merchandising stuff was everywhere. You know, the "I am the Stig" T-shirts, which were hilarious, were you know becoming a thing. Um, but yes, it was a feeding frenzy around the you know the Stig brand thing. And it was being called that now, the stick brand and all this sort of stuff. Um, I was quietly getting on with what I was doing. I was loving it, but there was definitely more external pressure um, than there had been before. Um, you know, and it was just yeah, it was a bit, it was a bit more s- severe around where where we were working. And I just, I just sort of saw where it was going, and I just felt that you know I was going to be, I, I thought I was gonna, I'm going to be phased out. I can see it. It's going to be phased out. They're going to have people coming in. We're going to do things in different countries. And, um, yeah, there were a few, and there were a few direct hints, you know, well, not just hints. We were going to do, Top Gear was going to do the Le Mans 24 hours, which for me, this is golden. It's kind of, it's, it's literally why I signed up to, to do the job. Um, and, um, uh, it's such a negative story. So I, I, I'm really restless to sort of talk about it, but it, it was one of the real reasons I, I thought this is, this is not going the right direction. And we were were, going to do this race, but, um, yeah, they, they were, fuck, I can't talk about this. It's it's just, I just can't bring it out because it's, it just, it feels negative.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right.
0: PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: Sometimes you've got to talk about negative to get to a positive. People think it's a whinge. It's, to, it, you know, it's not, it's,
1: yeah. I think it was a winch. I'm not a winch back. Right. Ultimately, I wanted to go racing and beyond just doing the brick car 24 hours. Um, and when I saw that, um, you, know, for the, for the, you know, for the thing to grow, ah, this is just a winch. It's turning into a winch.
2: Be natural. Try. <sighs> this is the real Ben Collins. People don't get this. This is why I do this. People don't get this. People uh, think that we've all got to be these. You mentioned at the beginning um, that you were quite, when you were thinking about things to do when you, uh, in your career, it was either going to be a lawyer, which is quite straight, or if it's going to be in the army, which is quite straight. But, but everybody, and we, we always bring this back on um, this podcast to try and make uh, the listeners realise that the people that get in these positions, the Stig, Hammond, Clarkson, whoever that we're talking to are actual human beings. And even if they're in these positions, which are like one in the world or something really special or amazing, that we are all actually human. So as you say, there's a bit of a whinge, but we have bits of our whinge in a, in a career. And if you've been at a show for that many series, something clearly has happened, which was the, the, the final straw of all that. Because in most people's contracts and, and business, it's, it's, it's quite simple in the real world. You have a 30 day call it off period or you go got to get put on guard and leave and you're on to the next thing. But there is that thing normally that triggers somebody leaving or someone being phased out. And if you say that is a key moment in your story, then you should potentially share. Yeah. I mean, I was pissed off because uh, the racing, like I said, it
1: was, it's always about money, this, that, the other. And, um, you know, we were going to do, the plan was to go and do Le Mans. But they needed they needed a driver to pay for it. And uh, I, was, I, was, I thought, I'm back to square one. Just absolutely back to square one. I just Even couldn't with believe.
2: the funding of the show and all the rest of it.
1: Yeah. So that was kind of that was kind of a breaking point and i just thought you know what i i've i've put so much into this i want this to be so cool i thought you know stig going racing would be would be the would be the be all end all and that really um was hard to sort of swallow and there were a few other things too that were like that where you know i couldn't be in all all different places at the same time um but i felt that that actually i've been incredibly loyal and it, it was really difficult and i was still you know on a on a very short term contract one day at a time pretty much So it was... um, And who was helping you with that behind the scenes get through that? Well, we we were all there because we loved it. So, and this is the thing. So I only have a positive reflection of my time. I absolutely loved it. It was the best job in the world until it was time, until I felt that the time was up. And I think I'd, you know, it had grown so big um, and, um, you know, you've got to just accept do I either stay here and and accept that's the way it is or go and do something else. So I decided to do something else and um, and that was to Forge a new career and you know, and now that's
2: in a completely different direction. But that was that it, was a, a It a wasn't quite crossroads. that simple because we mentioned the word shitstorm. Yeah. So where what what was the trigger point? You mentioned a month, that's where um you wanted to do that idea. That never happened. You felt like you were being phased out. What what was the smoking gun? What was the bullet? Well, leaving
1: was the hard thing. So having decided to go, um, I thought <laughs> Again, I was aware it was this huge thing. When I started Top Gear, it was around a sort of 2 million audience. As I left, it was half a million, sorry, half a billion worldwide. 72 countries were broadcasting it. Um, you know, Stig was a, it was everything from a stress doll to a, uh, you know, morning clock. Uh, what else was there? There was a pull a pull string thing like Woody from Toy Story. <laughs> um, it was on lunchboxes. I'd seen people walking around the high street in London with an the Stig shirt. Um, it had become a thing. And... You know, the BBC is a big organisation. You, 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 know, you don't want to tangle with them. So I wanted to do it the right way. Um, also, I wanted to do right by my boss. Um, but I also wanted to do right by myself. So, um, you know, I considered what I was going to do, and I gave and I had him my notice in, basically. And so my last series, I think so the last guests I had, um, not knowing they'd be the last guests, because I didn't, I didn't know at the start of the series, but um, my last show was Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz. So that was an amazing way to go out. Um, it was pretty cool and it was really hard, you know, sort of saying to, you know, someone who'd become a friend, this is my last series. This is where I'm going. I've loved it. Um, and, um, you know, let's work it out. But, um, ultimately it, it became a legal battle and
2: a pretty unpleasant one. Because you wanted it to come out as I am the stick. Your t-shirt was the only real one.
1: Yes, exactly. And, you know, I've been there eight years. That's a massive hole in your CV if you just, you know, you go on to your next thing. What did you do for the last eight years? Not much. Um, it, and it, it also seemed to me an opportunity for someone else to come in and start fresh. Um, again, not my decision to make necessarily. That's not my show. But
2: um, but freedom of speech is an is a important thing. I, I try not to. When guests like to keep their private life more private, which I know that's the kind of barrier that you're on, but ju- just if you could give us some insight. You mentioned, like, if, if you hadn't have, have come out, you'd have this great big hole in your CV as well. But I also try and look behind the scenes a little bit, like family-wise, obviously, you mentioned you, you've got a partner and you're married. That must be quite difficult for family around you as well. I could imagine a a, a friend of, well, something that's saying, oh, what, does, what does Ben do? Like, how, did, how does family members navigate that? Like, like when people say, oh, what, what does Ben do? And it's like, well, he's a racing driver, I guess. Is that basically the spiel that was put out? It was. I mean, to be fair, I mean,
1: I so I left in 2010. Um, but by that time, it had been in the press so much; it had been in almost every newspaper, and um, it was becoming almost impossible to defend it. So, family and friends, close ones, I'd sort of created a little bubble around, so that at least I could have some help, sort of fending people off. But it was it was practically impossible. So, having you know, if I if I'd left that, it 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 was so out in the. In the domain, it was it was on Wikipedia. It was all over the place, um, so the kind of cat was out of the bag, really. And then, so there was a timing element to this, where it's like, look, okay, no, this is this is up. And I was st- that is why I was starting to hear. That's why Michael Schumacher um, came onto the show was to help um, throw a smoke screen and, and also because he's awesome. I think uh, let's go get this the other way around. He's awesome. So it was you know the, there were, it was a great opportunity to get him on. But there was a reason for it, which is that it had been there had been a, uh, an explosion in the press. And um, it was great that he came in and, and did what he did um, and hilarious but to sort of get him out, you know, just there was me got to meet him, both of us in these stick suits, trooping around
2: together um, was really funny. But was that legal battle that ensued the hardest thing that you've ever dealt with? Yeah, that's most stressful <clears throat> because um, it's a huge,
1: you don't realise how big that organisation is until it turns its eye on you and is in attack mode. Um, huge legal department. So that was all there had to go to the high court, that was no joke. Um, and it coincided with the birth of my son. So, um, and we did try and move the dates and they wouldn't move it. So that all happened at the same time. And it was, it was a big, big deal. And if I, if and you know, if it had gone the other way, there was all sorts of ramifications and I'd have probably gone bankrupt. So it was it was an important one to to, um, to but, but equally, and I could have walked away from it, but at that point I felt I'd bit up it it puts so much pressure on us thought there's no way I'm backing down now. I'm, I'm leaving. And, um, it's not right. Well, how I, that, at that stage, it was not right. How it was handled. Where does that mental resilience come from? I don't know. It's just, I have grown up. I think, um, I've always hated bullies. Uh, I think, um, that's when, if, when you've got when, and so actually the more something
2: grows and and, so, and intimidates, I I dig in and, and push back. There was never a time in that where you thought, I just can't do this anymore, I'm throwing in the towel. I think there's definitely, you know, that you've got to have a voice of reason. And I was fortunate to have some great advisors.
1: I was also very fortunate to have fantastic support from my publisher, HarperCollins, and the individuals there that made a massive difference. Um, And my amazing agent, Mark Lucas, who's a literary genius um, and fantastic human being, um, to really guide me through and sort of like, you know, you're doing... You're doing nothing wrong. It, this is a process. This is now a process and um, you'll get through it.
2: But You did get through it, which is excellent. Did get and through it. there's uh, something on the table here, which is he's clearly advertising about. Uh, well, I bought that. <laughs> <laughs> but as he mentioned, Christmas is coming. As he mentioned, um, the Stig became a global brand. You, you can walk in any corner shop, probably in any corner of the world um, at one point, and there'd be anything from a coaster to a squishy toy. In there, So no doubt that having been able to then put, I'm guessing the result of uh, the battle that ensued enabled you to be able to do things like this. Exactly. So was this so, here your first book, The Man in the White Stuff, The Stiegler Mans, The Fast Lane, and me, Ben Collins? That is the book they tried to ban. So that was it. And so after that result, um, this book
1: came out and, um, and I did I, really well. I I'm going to sign one for you. <clears throat> We're we yep. gonna have a bookshelf in the road to success van. Do you read? I do. I'm just checking because there's, yeah, there's not that many pictures in this one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right here we
2: go. Uh, and whilst Ben uh, writes this, I will say most of the time on on the podcast, I try and sit sit back and ask the right questions to people sitting opposite for them to then tell their own story and just kind of point it in the right direction. But even from a personal perspective, from me, I've obviously sat down with a lot of people, but. Anything can happen. Like, I'm now sat in the back of my did van I, did I with name the right? stick. I think I spelled his name right. <laughs> to Ben the Dick, leave, live fast. Isn't it the Ben the stick? Dick? I thought it was Ben. <laughs> we got I'm just tell. Ben, just playing Ben. I'm not Benjamin. We're, that is perfect. And I, I will actually read this. I will read this and I will update everybody on the socials of how I get on. Um, but it's probably last week when we were in Vegas. It was your Ben did a meet and greet session on the stand. Um, that we were on with EBC Breaks, organised by Petulatinism, Chiro. We had a brilliant week. We actually went to see Car Show last week, which is how we met. And it always makes doing podcasts a lot easier when you've gone out, got pissed, had fun, gone in a nightclub and all the rest of it with someone, which is probably why he's written Ben the Dick in this book. Um, Well, how was I going with this? However, on the meet and greet stand with the paper, I remember this now. Ben wrote, I think it was a message. to. It wasn't me. It was one of the other guys, wasn't it? and you wrote some expletive on... The doesn't sound like <laughs> I would do that. ...on the card. And the card was just left on the table. And Ben thought someone was coming up to have a word with him. <laughs> really, they were just sticker collecting off the table. And they slid this card that he'd written to me or one of the other guys in the load of conspirators on and put it in their mate's bag just as they went along collecting cards. It's so unfortunate. I've abused a member <laughs> of the public who didn't know. just taking a present back for his wife. There you go. has, uh, has got a quite an abusive... Um, card there that they probably didn't even know came from the one and only Stig but this means that we can move on brilliantly into what's actually going on now with Ben Collins Um, how long was your stint at Tokyo you were there you left at series 15 or 16 so that was a huge chunk of your career Um, which obviously brings us on wonderfully to what you're doing now so why how come you're at SEMA? What's now going on in the world of Ben Collins for those that don't know? Well, unbeknownst to me, whilst I was working on this TV and movies, you know, as well,
1: um, YouTube was born <clears throat> and this entire world of content was just has been brewing. And I I still, you know, I thought everything revolved around the big screen, which actually isn't the case. And I think a lot of people now, I mean, my kids especially, they're just not really watching TV. They're all watching YouTube. And um finally, uh, I it's dawned on me, that is the place to go. And so I've created my channel, Ben Collins Drives.
2: Um, Nearly on 100K subscribers.
1: Click, like, and subscribe. Yes, please get me over there. Come on, let's get over the top. Um, And I love it. So, you know, having chased my tail, trying to do things with TV, and um, just realized that they can actually just go out and just go and shoot stuff. So I've been going out doing lots of Stig-like things um, in lots of different cars Getting hold of Formula One cars, Le Mans, amazing Le Mans cars and other, you know, opportunities have just sort of been bubbling up, which I never expected. I, mean, I never dreamed I would have driven a six-wheel Tyrrell until it happened this year. And then, just you know, we're talking of, of ideas, met um, Chiro, petro and Sam Hard at to Hard Up Garage. Um, it's like, come out to SEMA. And I've been to SEMA before. It's awesome. But never like this. I and mean, we, you know, we went out, there's a rat pack basically of, of influencers, social media, YouTubers, lunatics like you doing your podcasts and got to meet this whole gang of, of people. But it, it was way beyond what I imagined for me, I was going to go out, I had some people to meet out there, go and make some connections, get something going for my channel. Um, and, um, but actually it you know, it was like a, I mean, it was an, a learning experience it was an absolute crack, obviously tearing
2: up Las Vegas, um, and calling it work. That's kind of. I had these moments out in, in SEMA last week where I, I I just stopped for a minute and go, how is this happening? And it's kind of work like as as well. And I was watching it from. You got so excited, you broke your finger. I did. I did break my right finger, which is not quite straight. It's less colourful. Yeah, but it's not quite straight. But it's Vegas in there. But I was following you around one of one of the days, obviously walking around, see, seeing people. And just the amount of times you would speak to someone for less than five minutes, Freddie, Tavarish, brilliant example. He's been on the podcast. And someone goes, go, Hey man, you need to drive my car. Like you need to, is that a little bit surreal for you? Or is that just become normal? Well, I'm incredibly lucky that, uh, people would trust me to drive their
1: stuff for a start. And Freddie is a giant on YouTube. You know, he's, he's taken on this enormous project with his McLaren P1. Um, and, uh, and there's others you know, like Matt Armstrong. There's, um, you know, is you. There's, um, there's loads of big, big guys out there. Ammo, the detailer. Um, so there's lots of people who are, who are big, big stars. I think what's amazing with the YouTube crowd is that they're actually pretty grounded. They're quite humble characters. And they're really open to doing stuff, which is, which is a real breath of fresh air. So uh, having got to know them a little bit, it isn't surprising, but I don't take it for granted either. And, for, you know, so Freddie said, right, once this car's finished, you know his, uh, the views are in the multiple, multiple millions. People are loving his content, loving what he's doing with the McLaren. So I'll be the first one to drive that. It's going to be awesome. Um, so I can't wait to see what he creates. I mean, he's got a massive mission ahead of him. And I hope that his timeline he's able to follow
2: to get it out, ready for spring 2024. But it'll be exciting. So from beginning racing, sitting in the car, 18 years old, going out in Silverstone, Moving through a career of building up through racing, figuring out, making mistakes, crashing, ending up in a random <laughs> interview, I guess, which you didn't even think you'd got at first. Sitting in uh, a Dunsfold test track in a Porter gabin with James May bringing out cups of teas to becoming one of the most watched, I think it was the most watched program of all time in one of the most recognizable suits in the world. That's, that's quite a story. And then, obviously, what then ensued with you leaving um, Top Gear Legal Battles. That's quite the journey. What's, and, and again, now having your own YouTube channel and starting something again, it always seems that over this period, there's been times where you've had to reinvent the wheel and go again. What would you say is the most memorable or impactful moment for you that you think because of that thing that I did, it's now enabled me to do everything else?
1: Without doubt. Um, we wouldn't be sitting here if I hadn't been the Stig. And so that was, um, an, a, you know, huge moment in my career um, and one that I loved. And, uh, you know, I I felt that I, you know, put everything at heart and soul into. And, um, you know, even this, some small things, silly mannerisms and stuff like that, I still think that they, they you know, hopefully I added value to that character. Um, uh, but without it, you know, it would have, my career would have been completely different. I think I'd have still had a fantastic time and I'd have done, I think I'd have followed my own star and done, something that I would value and, and, um, you know, found another way to do something, whether it was in different walk of life entirely or through motorsport or other things. Um, but it's enabled me to do stuff that I love. I love writing. So I've written three books. Um, I absolutely love sharing um, knowledge. I love instructing. I, you know, that's why I wrote how to drive just to try and impart as much of my racing knowledge through the medium of storytelling to people who are learning to drive for the first time, or people who maybe have a passion for it, want to learn how to improve their skills even further, that sort of stuff. Or Aston Martin, I went right back to the beginning to tell their their story from the very beginning through all the mini biographies of all of the contributors, the engineers, not just looking at metal and pistons and you know cubic inches and stuff like that, which are only interesting if you've got the context of why they matter, and that's down to the designer and the engineers and their philosophy. So, you know, I love all of that. I love the creative process of making movies, whether they're James Bond or Star Wars. I've got to work on that, you know, or now. Collaborating with small, small teams on, on YouTube, coming up with crazy ideas and doing them. So, you know, it's all, for me, it all brings together into one place. You know, you're creating an idea, creating a story, running with it. It's what I love doing. And um, so, I'm, I'm. you know, when people say, do you miss it? Do you know, do you look back? I always look back. The days as the stick were <clears throat> one of a kind you know, there was, it was a place in time. You look back, it's like absolutely phenomenal. I was so proud to have done it and so much fun, but actually my day to day doesn't feel much different. So I'm,
2: I am blessed with that. I just crack on and keep making stuff I find interesting. There's so many people, um, grafting out there with YouTube channels and trying to throw something on a wall and make it stick. And you've been in two different stages of a journey, really, which is Top Gear was, as we just said a minute ago, one of the most watched programs of all time with huge views. But would you say that the growing of things like your YouTube channel in the early days of actually growing Top Gear, do you think you were most miserable when Top Gear had the peak views? I've never been miserable. So, um, you know, I think. So what do you mean by that? Do you think the hard the, the times where you least enjoyed yourself towards the end at Top Gear, for argument's sake, when the views were at its peak, oh. when James could no longer bring the tea and biscuits out to the side of the track because it had become this corporate congolum, but sometimes we're all working to get to that stage to try and be at the top, to be at the best. But it actually sounds like with your story, the most exciting times have actually been the journey, the build-up.
1: Oh, I, I loved every day I did there. I I, I, I never... Uh, not, no regrets whatsoever. It was fantastic. Um, it's just that I knew that the the days were coming to an end and I had to make a decision. I was at the crossroads. I was like, right, which way, left or right? Um, I think Willman summed it up best, though. I mean, he, he was quite punchy. And he said, I think it was sort of like, if we had any balls, we'd have killed the show and we'd have axed it in 2008. And I thought that was the sort of time of peak Top Gear. So that was when the the ideas were very fresh um and it gets harder and harder you know to try and keep reinventing new storylines it's tough i mean most tv shows don't live longer than eight eight years It's about it's where the
2: youtube channels as well
1: yeah so um so i think that's that's sort of a fact of life and they were sort of getting it was getting harder for them to keep reinventing and keep creating um yeah the corporate side does, i suppose <clears throat> doesn't help and you know the when the team expands and you've got external influences on, on, on that sort of stuff.
2: It does dampen things a bit, but no, it was awesome for me. Awesome to the end. You, you were not the final stick though. What would you say to people, comments out there that say that you killed the stick? Well, I can sympathize because I do, I know, I
1: know where they're coming from with that. I mean, the fact is I did eight years there in a time when everybody was trying to reveal who it was. It was in the top ten searches on Google, and you know who is the stick was up there as a as a thing. There was massive pressure. Journalists were breaking into the place where I was getting changed to sort of get my ID and, and stick it out, and I think I fended it off pretty well up until the point it was untenable. At the peak, when in what we would call the I suppose the what do you want to call those years the golden years of Top Gear. So although it comes it came to an end, and I was partly responsible for bursting the bubble, it was going to happen in the end, and um, so. So those ones who, who were disappointed with it, you know, that's tough. But at the same time, I think that what I brought to it, you know, was, I think it was worth more than, than what maybe I took away when I left. Um, plus, you know, it was an opportunity for the next Stig to at least pick a different colour. I mean, come on, they could have gone with something different. Why not? I mean, you know, Manchester United, they, they change their um, jerseys every year. It's cool to come up with something different, I thought they could have spun off in a different direction, but actually they kind of clamped down on what Stig could do. And I think that was a shame. So, um, you know, the, the next one had a tougher time. I think they, they just didn't let him out. He's sort of locked in a shed. I don't even know where he is. He's gone missing. He's AWOL. Don't know where he is now. I hope they're feeding him and that he's not been put to pasture. Um, but, um, but no, you know, I mean, I,
2: I don't, and, and, you know, we miss Top Gear. It's not on the screens at the moment. It's, um, it's one of those things. And Collins, I- Thank you so much for coming on and telling your story today and in so much detail and things that people not necessarily have heard before as well. And to those that have listened and followed today, please check out Ben's journey now on his YouTube channel, the incredible films that he's making with not only driving cars around and being a hooligan, but also some in depth uh, podcasts yourself, uh, going out, meeting with people like Tavares, driving some incredible cars and rebuilding a Lancia Delta, one of your favorites. Yes. And you're next
1: on track. I'm gonna get hold of this man, and I'm gonna to torture him. Pleasure, thank you very much.
2: You. Cheers. Fucking finger.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Acast powers the world's
1: best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Robert, tell the people, what's a pretendian? It's just what it sounds like, Angel, a pretend Indian. Someone
2: who fakes being one of us.
1: Someone who impersonates a native.
2: We're talking about real scammers and con artists.
1: There are pretendians teaching at universities, pretendians running governments, pretendians in Hollywood.
2: On our new podcast, pretendians will tell you the incredible story of these jaw-dropping frauds.
0: Who are they?
1: Why do they do it? And how the heck do they keep getting away with it?
0: Listen to Pretendians on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts
1: everywhere. ACAST.com